Hannah Smits is Global Head of Investment Management at BMY Mellon. Last year, she made the top 10 of American bankers' most powerful women in finance. She's also the global chair of the 30% Club, which aims to secure 30% representation of women on all major company boards globally. Her goal is to eradicate the need for the 30% Club entirely. And as a consequence, when my younger self entered the workplace, I just thought the sky was the limit. For me, there isn't a preferred model. It's sort of how you leverage the environment you are part of, right? How you use the capabilities of the enterprise to, to drive results. There's so much jeopardy as well involved in, in the figures and the sums of money that you're talking about. And I guess it becomes second nature to somebody in your position over a period of time. But that, that responsibility, does it, does it weigh quite heavily? Hanneke, I wanted to start this pod by talking with you about your story and how you got to be the powerhouse that you are in the world of finance and, and your journey on the way to, to being that person. You're now the global head of investment management at BMY Mellon. And obviously, everyone's got their own path to tread. My daughter said to me the other day, well, mommy, I think I might want to be a banker when I'm older. And I thought that was a really extraordinary thing for a seven-year-old to say. But it's not necessarily the first childhood dream that somebody may have. Was it your dream? Was it your passion? How did, how did you come to be so interested in the world of finance? Yeah, it's very interesting uh, that, that you ask that question because I often reflect on it as well. And as I go around and talk to younger people, uh, my own daughter is 17 and I actually did a talk at her school uh, and started to think back to my own 17-year-old self and what I was thinking about. And my, my passion was actually for languages growing up. I grew up in the Netherlands. I did the equivalent of sort of the IB um, in eight subjects, and five of those were languages, Dutch, Latin, French, um, English, and German. And I wanted to pursue some kind of career that was going to combine languages, travel, and perhaps some, some work in the business world. But I ended up going down a different path, advised by my father, whose advice I did take at uh, age 17, and ended up going to a university that really set me up very well for life called Nairod in the Netherlands, which was modeled on a um, sort of American bachelor system. And it was a business degree that I took, but it also gave you exposure to languages. We had American professors as well as exchange students on, on campus. Um, it was quite global in its outlook. So to some degree, it satisfied my curiosity sort of for, for the world. Um, and then when I finished that, uh, it was only a three-year degree, uh, which for my generation was relatively short uh, in the Netherlands because most degrees lead up to a master's. So I decided to do um, some internships and some projects, somewhat trial and error, to figure actually out what I wanted to do uh, next. And I had the opportunity to do an internship with what we would now call a small venture firm in Hong Kong. And I went out there in early 1988. And I still remember landing at what was then Kai Tak Airport and the bustle and the energy and the scent. It was also different, but also hugely energizing. And I found the work that I did there quite interesting, but also the, um, the fact that Hong Kong was already such a global hub. It really opened my mind to 
quite a wide range of possibilities that I then sort of since that I then continue to explore and pursue. As a woman stepping into that world, did you always feel like the doors were open and anything was possible? Um, I, you know, it's really interesting now looking back on this, this notion of as a woman, as you know, I'm passionate about diversity, I'm passionate about advancing women, and quite frankly, many other people from different backgrounds uh, in the workplace, because it's the diversity of thought that matters so much. But when I entered the world of work, I, I did not consider somehow that being female might be a disadvantage in, in, in financial services or, or, or quite frankly, in, in, in other areas. And perhaps that came from the confidence that my parents had instilled in me. Um, I came from a background where for, for both of my parents, education was really, really critical. Uh, I have a sister and a brother. And uh, my father used to say to us that the key thing I can help you focus on is ensure you you have a good education. You need to be, and you see in particular say to my sister and me, you need to be able to stand on your own feet and be financially independent. And when, when I can see that you can do that, then sort of my job is done. And he didn't really differentiate um, between my sister and myself on the one hand in terms of what he wanted from us and or expected of us and, and, and my brother. So, so as such, I did not come into the workplace thinking that I would encounter a, a different type of environment than the one that I had grown up in. So to, to some extent, a very strong perspective that my parents delivered had really been passed down to them from my grandparents on both sides, my, on my father's side, um, they'd been born in the 1890s, had lived through two world wars, as well as the Great Depression, had lost their farm uh, during or had to give up farming uh, in the 1930s. And the thing that got my father's father back on track was the fact that he had a higher level type of agricultural education. And he ended up working for the Ministry of Agriculture in the Netherlands. He had six children. My father was the youngest. And so for my grandfather, it was really important that his three daughters and his, my aunts, as well as his three sons, uh, would be able to, to sustain themselves uh, financially. And on my mother's side, uh, they uh, were in Indonesia during the Second World War, uh, unfortunately spent some time in a prisoner of war camp. Uh, lost my grandfather uh, towards the end of the war. And so my grandmother came back with my mother and my aunt um, and had to rebuild their lives back in the Netherlands. And again, there was a really strong focus on, on my mother's mother's part that her daughters had to have an education that allowed them to be independent. So it really came to me through the generations. And as a consequence, when my younger self entered the workplace, I just thought the sky was the limit. You talk so fondly about your parents and your grandparents. Do you, do you see your family as being the greatest influence on you? They, they were, yes, they were and have continued to be a huge uh, influence on me. I was very fortunate to have a very close family quite a large family as well, lots of lots of interesting people. But also my father was a businessman. He was actually the first uh, of his generation uh, to, or, or of his siblings to go to university. 
and was a successful businessman in the Netherlands. So naturally, as I pursued that path, I would, uh, he was a great mentor and a good advisor. I would turn to him for advice when I was faced with some early, you know, with some choices uh, in, in the or earlier part of my career. He passed away eight years ago, but there are still moments where I think, you know, when I, when I'm at a fork in the road, what, what would he have done? What, what would he have said uh, around leadership and around choices uh, that you make? It's interesting you mentioned that fork in a road. I mean, has there been one in particular that's had greater significance than the others, which has determined what's happened subsequently in the path in which you've taken? So I would say there have been, um, when I look back over my career, it sort of had two quite big forks. I've spent time in private market, in the private markets world of investing between 1992 and 2000 and the end of 2014. And over that period, I really, I only worked for two organizations and a real fork in the road for me was in 1997, um, having been with one organization uh, where I had a fabulous opportunity to learn a lot and, and hone my skills as an analyst. I got a phone call from effectively a competitor, uh, uh, which ended up becoming Adam Street Partners, where I spent 17 years of my career, uh, to ask if I would set up their, I had an interest in being considered to set up their European uh, investment portfolio and team, uh, and, and subsequently also client base. Um, it did mean I had spent a year in Chicago. And I thought about it long and hard uh, because I was very um, tied to uh, the company I had first worked for. They'd given me a great opportunity and I'd learned a lot there over the course of the first five years. But now you get to the fork in the road and how one thinks about risk and opportunity. Being offered the opportunity to start a portfolio from scratch, a team from scratch on one hand can be very, very scary. And you can only look at the risks, but you could also just look at the opportunity. And there, actually, talking to my father at the time, who was definitely more in the camp of seeing the opportunity, and I tend to be in that camp as well. You need to manage the risk around it and, and understand that there is risk with taking that decision. I went for the opportunity and sort of then never looked back. was in Chicago for a year, came back to London, set up that European team, developed the track record, was then also asked uh, by my then US colleagues um, to uh, consider an Asian portfolio. So recruited that particular team who worked with me in London for some time. And then over time, we uh, broadened that out to a team in Singapore and Beijing. So I I continue to have that global connectivity and perspective. Uh, I was able to actually uh, bring my curiosity into the workplace, which was wonderful. Um, but again, it's also about those forks in the road, how you think about the risk versus the opportunity. And then the next time came during 2014 when I'd been with that organization for you know, about 17 years and started to think about what's next, how much, you know, I was in my late 40s, how much longer do I want to continue in this role? And I, I came to the conclusion, which, which you know, that uh, for a number of reasons, my heart wasn't completely in it anymore. Um, I had really enjoyed setting up Europe, Asia. I ended up um, 
being the global chief investment officer, so also working much more closely with my U.S. colleagues, seen a lot, done a lot, but I felt I was ready for something else. I wasn't quite sure what, so I took the decision to uh, to leave, uh, which I did at the end of 14, and, and, and then I had a year off. And to be honest, when you sit at home uh, after you've made that decision, you just think, oh, my goodness, what have I done now? And then you need to start <laughs> thinking about how you develop that, you know, that next chapter and where you take your skills and capabilities next. Yes, because I suspect even though you've taken that decision and, you, you know, you've controlled that journey, there must be a period of vulnerability there where you are sat back for a moment thinking, actually, what does the next step really look like? And then you've got to dive in. So what is that period of time like for somebody who is used to being able to sort of seize the opportunity and, and move forward in that way when actually you are required to stand back and sort of assess your options? Well, first of all, I saw it as a, as, a, as a period of great privilege to have the time to step back and assess what I wanted to do next. And I sort of spent time, you know, I sort of did three things. Uh, first of all, I listened. Uh, I went around and I spoke to a number of people I'd known for some time who were ahead, in their, who were ahead of me in terms of their career and who'd gone through a sort of similar change to learn, from, you know, to, to better understand and learn from them how they approached going through such a change. Then secondly, I thought long and deep about the core skills and capabilities that I had developed, uh, which wasn't so much about, oh, I can run spreadsheets, but it was more around, you know, is it more about people leadership? Is it about investment leadership? And what, what of those skills are transferable to other types of, of organizations. And then I also thought long and hard around, um, you know, the work-life balance, um, how much I wanted to travel, what type of organization I wanted to be part of, big or small. And I was very fortunate when the opportunity with Newton came along in uh, early 2016, because it gave me um, the opportunity to move into a different part of the investment world where I could, where I felt that I could transfer some of my, but not all of my investment knowledge. And it was also an opportunity for me to learn uh, some new things, uh, which I think is always, is, is always key. And there was also an opportunity to work with colleagues at Newton to make it a bit more global and diversified away from um, its very, very strong foundations in the UK. But from a personal perspective, I also knew that Newton was of a scale where I didn't have to do that globalization all by myself, which was the case 20 years earlier when, uh, when I had started at what had become Adam Street, when you literally build a team from scratch. So um, that was a very, an, very interesting journey. And then being part of, a, you know, running a subsidiary of a much larger enterprise, um, it was also interesting to come full circle. I've worked for very small organizations. I've worked for organizations that were part of a large bank that we then spun out and I've sort of come back the other way. And what I've learned from that when people ask me, is there, you know, do you have a preferred model? I would say there isn't, for me, there isn't a preferred model. It's sort of how you leverage the environment you are part of, right? How you use the capabilities of the enterprise 
to, to drive results uh, going forward. At the end of the day, we all work for our clients and shareholders, and the clients can be different, shareholders can be different, they can be private shareholders, they can be public shareholders, but that is ultimately what we do, irrespective of the size of the uh, organization you're in. And I'm also a believer that one can be entrepreneurial, and quite frankly, should be entrepreneurial, even when working in a large corporate. Well, that's very interesting. So how does that best manifest itself then if you if there's this sort of entrepreneurial approach and spirit, but there's so much jeopardy as well involved in, in the figures and the sums of money that you're talking about. And I guess it becomes second nature to somebody in your position over a period of time. But that, that responsibility, does it does it weigh quite heavily? And how do you balance the entrepreneurship with keeping things absolutely safe as houses? <laughs> So, so of course, it's it's a huge responsibility, but of course, I also don't manage all of that myself. We have a series of fabulous teams and experts in asset classes through the subsidiaries that we own who directly manage the portfolios for the clients. I, I, I see it as my job to ensure that we have the right teams in place, the right leaders to deliver those uh, results to clients. And I also see it as my role uh, to think strategically on behalf of the organization and continue to look for areas of innovation, be it working more closely with the bank of, of, of BNY Mellon or, um, you know, delivering new solutions for our clients. And that is that is where you can sort of apply some of the entrepreneurship we're thinking because it does require some creativity. But a lot of it is also about the teams around you. So every time you step into a new role, I've always found you, you need to spend time with people and teams to to understand uh, to understand them, to um, ensure that you feel that you're supported by them, that they have the right areas of focus, and that you know that you have a clear understanding on both sides when your engagement and leadership is needed and when you can let the teams um, uh, you know run to meet their objectives. I think many people who are just embarking on their own businesses or their own startups, perhaps, or involved in small businesses will find the people piece a real challenge and getting that right a real challenge. So how do you go about making sure you've got not just the right skill set where people are required, but also the right team? Yes, that's a really interesting question because you're absolutely what I think you're getting at it's not always about the hard skills and I'm sure you see this in sport as well it's about how those teams come together you can have I've worked with people who had very high IQ but not were not so high on the EQ and that can work in a certain environment so in investment there are certain roles Whereas actually where you, you kind of need someone who's particularly focused on one thing. But when it comes to a team environment, you need a, you need a balance of those skills. You need the IQ, but you also need the EQ. And if, that, if you see that there's a shortage, you either need to replace um, the team members or think about it differently and you obviously always need to give feedback first. I, you know, many people I'm sure have said this on, on this po podcast in 
different ways, but feedback is a gift. I think both the giving as well as the receiving, by the way, I think as a leader, it's hugely important to receive feedback um, because we don't have the answers to, to everything either. And you need to listen to your team, but you also need to give your team members a chance um, to adjust. So feedback, how you give it is important. The environment you, um, you can you you construct so that team members can perform to the best of their abilities is also really critical and sometimes it also comes working from from working with the team and making sure that everybody understands that people bring something different and special to the table and that there mm. isn't always one way of solving things which is the whole point um of a team in football you know, what you look for in a goalie is very different from what you look for in, in your attacker. And you wouldn't you wouldn't swap them in your team. And that's similar in the business world, too. And when things do go wrong, is it more that the world around you, you're having to react and you're having to overcome adversity in that regard and, and how you, you know, how you deal with that from the position in which you hold or is it or if is there a scenario whereby within the organization something may have got overlooked or something there may need to be a redress how, how do you overcome those particular challenges and those particular problems so look not everything works out and I learned that earlier on early on in my career uh, when I was an investor and to me, what was always really critical is once a year, we would have an offsite and we would do case studies on investment decisions that had not worked out. It's quite easy to talk about things that do work out, but yeah. it's from your failures that you learn the most. And, you know, there were occasions where we would say knowing, you know, knowing what we would, what we know today, we probably still would have made the same decision uh, or three years earlier, uh, but sometimes you find that there's a flaw in your process and your way of thinking. So it's about learning from your failures. That's really critical. I think in, in, and I've always taken that forward. I think as a consequence, it's also really critical that you create an environment where people feel it's okay to um, fail at something sometimes because it's about the learning environment. And secondly, uh, that they come and talk to you when something isn't working out, because otherwise we can't help. You, you can't you can't sort of help to address the particular situation. So also creating that safe space and that learning environment, I think, is uh, hugely critical. And it's a, and and the way I have found I can create it by owning up to my own mistakes. Mm -hmm. Right. So there will be moments as a leader. I very much believe in listening to views around the table, um, broadly trying to get to consensus. But there will be inevitably there are situations where perhaps the teams are split and I have to, you know, you get to a point where you realize, well, I'm going to have to take this decision. And I, I'm generally very clear in those moments as to what that I'm comfortable with taking the decision I will articulate it. I will, you know, my way of saying it would be like, okay, I know some of you want to go left and some of you want to go right. I'm actually going straight or what, whatever <laughs> the decision is. But I will be very clear it's my decision. And if it doesn't work out, I will also come back to the team and say, I'm aware I took this decision six months ago and it hasn't worked out. Let's talk about it so that 
next time, you know, we, we all learn from this and perhaps I should have, you know, um, put more weight on what the people on the left side of the table were saying than the right side or, or, or whatever it is. And I think by showing your own vulnerability and, and that you, you know, you, you make mistakes as well, it, I think it helps to create an environment where people are comfortable coming to you as a leader to share um, when things don't work out. Absolutely. In in terms of uh, one of the things we talk about a lot on this podcast is um, it, within sport is one of the beauties of sport is it has this sort of element of surprise. There's always the possibility that you might not be able to predict what's going to happen next. In your world, have you had those moments? Have you surprised? Have you been taken by surprise? Are you um, or have you, in fact, surprised yourself by something that may have happened and, and how you've reacted to it? Yeah, look, when, when you when you are involved in the world of investing, you're always on the lookout for surprises and events that, as we say, are low probability but sort of high impact. But of course, the, the, the challenge with that is you can't predict when they happen and how they happen and how deep the impact is going to be. So you tend to be in an environment, and I think that's true in sports as well, where there's generally a lot of unpredictability, but there's normal unpredictability. And then there are moments when, you know, and then there are moments when things really are at risk of falling off a cliff. So in, fi in financial terms, it was, of course, often we talk about the global financial crisis. There was a moment of, oh, my goodness, what is happening to our port? You know, at the time, at the situation I was in, what's happening to our portfolios? What, what, what can we do? How can we, how can we ensure that we still deliver performance to our clients? And actually, the situation I was in at the time, we managed to turn it into an opportunity and and acquire assets at relatively low prices, which really helped with the overall performance. Twenty twenty two, where you know, I would say there were two events that you know, really impacted markets, one or really three. One was, um, of course, the, the start of the war in Ukraine, uh, which was very unsettling. Secondly was the interest rate environment and how quickly the central banks would increase interest rates. Uh, and, and that perhaps went a bit quicker than some uh, had anticipated. And then thirdly, specifically to the UK, we, we had our we had the mini budget crisis, which really uh, impacted the value of gilts in ways that we had not seen before and clearly created considerable moments of stress in the business. But it's then how you how you come together as a team, how you work through that, how you um, make sure you bring the right people together to solve those problems uh, that, that I think that that helps you move forward. One of the things that you're now very much responsible and the figurehead for as a global chair is the 30% club. Just just tell us what your take is on that, because we talk about being surprised and being taken by surprise. Are you surprised there aren't more women in serious positions of power? Um, you know, would you hope that there would be by 2024, we'd be in a stronger position there? Yes, I, I am surprised. Look, when I was... Um 
we were talking about my, you know, 17 year old self or my 22 year old self mm. entering the workplace and not, and being somewhat agnostic to the gender topic, because I did not think that that was going to be um, still so defining throughout my career. And I have been surprised that as I've sort of looked around the C-suite tables at, at, at the lack of women um, that are sitting around those tables. And on one level, we have made a lot of progress. So the 30% Club, since it was founded in 2010, we've made fantastic progress in terms of uh, ensuring that there are now more women in non-executive roles on boards. But we still, one of the reasons I, uh, you know, uh, succeeded Anne Cairns in the role of, as chair of the 30% Club, because I feel there's still a lot more to do in the C-suite. We have less than 10% of female CEOs uh, in the FTSE 100, in the S&P 100. That's true for CFOs and chairs as well. And I said last year when Severn Trent announced that they had appointed a female CFO, making them, I think, at the time, the first listed company that had a female CEO, chair, and uh, chief financial officer, you sort of look at that and you think, wouldn't it be nice if that if that wasn't newsworthy anymore, yeah. right? That's just the, the way forward. Um I think there are lots of reasons, it's probably another, another whole podcast as to why we don't see enough women at sort of coming through in, in those senior levels. But I think we need to, you know, we, we, we need to keep this front and center. I think it's also a business imperative, quite frankly, in the same way that you want diverse teams in, in, in sports uh, you want diverse teams, not just by gender, but also by socioeconomic background, ethnicity, sexual orientation, educational background around the table to to get to the best, you know, business decisions that that you can make. That's a really interesting point. Why, in particular, do you think diversity, not just women, but as you've just mentioned, all these other groups as well, why is that so important around a table making fundamental decisions? What does that bring to the party? When you get into diversity of thought, people apply. We're all shaped by, I've just been sharing some of, some of my personal journey with you, and we're all shaped by where we've come from, um, we bring our values and perspectives uh, to those discussions. It's what you've learned uh, through your education, through your family, through you know, through different experience you've had in the workplace. And as a result, when in a business you're faced with a particular problem that you're trying to solve, actually you want to have different um, perspectives around the table because there might be things that I'm not seeing. I. I um, you, you, you may be aware there's quite a famous sort of um, uh, 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 video that is sometimes shown about what, what people, but which shows the importance of perspective where there's a couple of, you're asked to watch um, a basketball match uh, and then you're asked to describe that. And then at the end of it, you're asked if you saw the gorilla um, going through the basketball court. And because of how the task is set up, a lot of people miss the gorilla because you you just are looking at the players, right? And 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 that, I think that 
to me, having watched that uh, from time to time and have seen the impact on teams where you go like, oh my gosh, how did I not see that? That is actually what diversity of perspective and thought is all about, that different people see different things and will have a different approach to problem solving, um, which is really, you know, we're, we're, we're dealing with some very complex choices Mm. Um, and decisions we have to make, and therefore you want to draw in as much as you can. So what, Hanukkah, is your ultimate goal with the 30% club? I mean, presumably it's sort of along the lines of it shouldn't exist at all. I mean, it, we, it should just be a given that women are in these positions in the first instance. Well, yes, that is ultimately at the end goal, but I think it's going to take quite some time um, before we can say that we don't need the 30% club anymore or, or a number of the other uh, campaigns that are out there, whether it's um, the Valuable 500, which represents disabled um, individuals or um, change the race ratio here in the UK, which focuses on ethnicity targets. I think it's going to take a long time um, before we don't need these campaigns anymore. So I you know, I think we, but ultimately you're absolutely right. That is the end, that is the end goal. So one thing I want to leave this on is, and you must be the doyen of performance tips. What is one thing that you would say to my audience listening or watching today with regards to performance? The, the one thing that you perhaps do or, or you wish you did more of that every single day can actually help your everyday performance, what would it be? So, sorry, so there's what I wish I do and what I actually do do. Um, <laughs> so I, every every day I look ahead and I'm quite ruthless about my calendar, both, you know, the calendar for the day as well as the week ahead and the month ahead. And I constantly ask myself and work with my fabulous assistant or I say, okay, do I need to be in this meeting? Why am I in this meeting? Am I there to make a decision? Is it advancing the business? Is it working with uh, some of the not-for-profits that I do? Um, is it some, you know, there's quite a lot of events that perhaps I'm, I'm asked to attend. So you sort of go through your list of reasons why you should or shouldn't attend. And if it doesn't tick a number of boxes, then I, I decide to change my calendar because you never have enough time to do everything that you need to do in these jobs. So it's back to what are absolutely the three things that you must complete uh, in a day or any given week. And you need to be ruthless about going about that. Um, a former colleague of mine sent me a little article as I started in this role, which was um, about calendar management. And it said, you should approach every entry in your calendar with, I think it was something like the four Ds, decide if you delete the meeting, delay it, delegate it, or diminish it. So I added a fifth and I said, or decide to actually do the meeting um, <laughs> and, and, and have a positive in there as well. But you know what? It's a little trick. It helps me. It helps me enormously. And secondly, I would say, but, but everyone in these roles struggles, struggles with this. You must look at your week and actually figure out what you do to look after yourself. Because sometimes there just isn't enough time, but you need to... You know, whatever that means to you, and that will be something different to different people. In my case, it's either doing some exercise or spending time with family or maybe sitting quietly with a book. 
um, you must make the time for that because it, it, or in my case, I find it, you know, it, it gives me some rest and some new energy to deal with the challenges ahead. Both of those are excellent tips. Annika, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you making the time for us in your diary today. <laughs> it was my absolute pleasure. Really pleased to be here. And this was definitely in the top three. <laughs> Perfect. Couldn't wish for more. Thanks, Annika.